0: midtown detroit studios of wdet this is detroit today
1: a showdown looms in washington over whether to raise the nation's debt ceiling yet again this time republicans who control the house of representatives are poised to say no to the Democratic president We'll talk with a Washington Post reporter who is covering the standoff and with an economist who will help us understand everything that's at stake. It's next on The Drake Today, but first the news from NPR. right, today on 1019 WDET, I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you decided to join today. On Thursday, the U.S. Treasury informed Congress that it is taking, quote, extraordinary measures to prevent the federal government from surpassing its debt spending limit and possibly defaulting on the country's credit obligations. This entire situation revolves around the federal debt ceiling, which is the cap on the total amount of money that the government is allowed to borrow. Because the federal government runs budget deficits, we borrow money to pay our bills. But Congress is required to authorize that borrowing, which they have historically done incrementally, but always with a cap on the total amount allowed. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said defaulting on paying our obligations could cause irreparable harm to the U.S. economy. And yet Republicans in Congress continue to use the debt ceiling as a tool to secure their economic policy goals. In 2011, America faced quite possibly the most severe risk of default when House Republicans, who were steadfast in refusing to raise the debt ceiling, pushed then-President Barack Obama to the brink of default before he agreed to set caps on future spending in exchange for lifting the limit. Here we are 10 years later, 12 years later, really, uh, President Biden uh, is facing this again. And in 2021, he successfully called House Republicans bluff in another debt ceiling showdown, winning a limit increase of the ceiling without stipulations. As a result, it seems both parties have learned Different lessons from all of this. And so, yet again, facing another debt ceiling showdown, some Republicans say it's appropriate to hold the debt ceiling hostage, asserting rampant deficit spending by the government causes increasing deficits that can't be stopped. But both Democrats and other moderate Republicans argue that even if you have concerns about deficits, holding the federal government hostage is not the way to address the issue, the debt ceiling deals with obligations you have already made, not future spending. And since the two issues are entirely separate, using the country and perhaps the world's financial stability as a negotiating chip amounts to a really irresponsible instance of hostage taking. Now, we talk about these things in really vague policy context all the time. But there are some real-world consequences that would likely meet out if we didn't extend the debt ceiling. Among them, a severe drop in crash uh, or a crash in the stock market, Uh, a crash like we haven't seen in a really long time. There would be higher interest rates for borrowers, a credit downgrade for the U.S. government, along with the inability to meet its obligations from spending on the military, on Social Security and everyday functions like air traffic control and medical care for veterans and elderly Americans. That list is from a report recently in U.S. News. So what are we supposed to do about this situation? Where does that leave us with the current situation? What is Washington going to do now that we are in the unfortunately all too familiar territory of dealing with another potential debt ceiling showdown. And can we prevent this from happening again? That's where we begin the conversation today. And a little later, we're going to talk with Wendy Edelberg, who is an economist with the Brookings Institution and a former chief economist for the Congressional Budget Office. She's going to talk to us about the economic ramifications of this fight. But right now, we're joined by Jacob Bogage, who is a reporter for The Washington Post. He has been covering the debt ceiling uh, for the paper. Jacob, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with how we continually seem to get to this point. This happens over and over and over. Uh, Why is that? Why is that the case?
2: Because we keep spending because we have a functional government, so to speak. Uh, When Congress approves budgets and sets spending, uh, we do a lot of it based on deficit spending. And so – Even though the deficit has shrank in recent years, in relative terms, uh, we keep running up debts and there is a limit imposed by Congress as to how much we can borrow. Uh, And So when we hit that limit, because these increases are not very big uh, in relative terms to the amount of spending, we push up against the ceiling. And so we have to keep having this conversation.
1: So one question I have and I think a lot of people might have is, you know, Democrats had complete control of Congress until January of 2023. Um, Why didn't they push for a longer term fix to this debt ceiling crisis in the lame duck session, for instance, last month, especially once they knew that Republicans were going to take control of the House This term, this seems like a missed opportunity, was it?
2: I think there's a lot of Democrats waking up these days asking themselves the same question. Uh, Yes, they had control of both the House and Senate. They could have passed legislation to either raise the debt ceiling themselves through the reconciliation process, which could avoid a filibuster. They could have eliminated the debt ceiling altogether. We don't actually have to have this. Um, They could have gotten rid of it. They didn't have the votes. Uh, there were two um, well, at the time, there were two conservative Democrats, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, mm-hmm. who didn't support that policy. Kirsten Cinema has since left the Democratic Party. She, she's an independent, she will caucus with the Democrats, but is no longer a Democrat, specifically over uh differences over things like the filibuster operating in regular order. Uh fiscal policy, uh, and reproductive policy as well. So th- there's some fundamental difference of opinion um, as the Democratic Party has moved um, slight, not really not even all that much to the left, but has moved to the left over the past uh, couple decades. There are still uh, folks who are, uh, who call themselves Democrats or, or who are part of that coalition, but haven't moved with them. And this was one of the dividing lines. Hmm.
1: So uh, let's talk about the other side of the aisle in Congress. What is it that Republicans really think they might accomplish with this fight? I mean, uh, ostensibly, it's about in, in enforcing some sort of fiscal discipline on. On government spending, this seems in some ways an odd way uh, to do it. but but, what do they imagine is possible uh, if they if they hold out and and try to extract something in exchange for uh, a raise in the debt ceiling?
2: I think this is one of the areas where Republicans are going to wake up and smell the coffee one day and go, "Oh, there's really nothing that's accomplishable here.". Hmm. Um, there's a lot of head-scratching going on, specifically because, it, it, and let's just talk about the political calculus here for a minute. Um, Republicans are saying if you don't strip benefits away from the most vulnerable people in society, the elderly, the impoverished, um, the uh disabled. If you you do not take the benefits away from these people, then we will plunge the global economy into chaos. I don't know how you win on that. Hmm. Um, And, you know, President Obama fought this same battle uh, with, frankly, a less extreme or hardline group of Republicans in Congress uh, back in 2011 and won because he was able politically to pin this uh, disaster on congressional Republicans who blinked. Um, the White House today, I mean, they're gonna have the exact same opportunity you know, the, to go to voters in an election year and say, or in the, during an election cycle and say, hey, you could vote for us, we're governing, or you could vote for the people who you know, want to strip away your benefits, and if they don't, want to ruin the economy for the rest of us. Um, And it gets a little bit more complicated because, as we have seen recently, the Republican House is in disarray Mm -hmm. right now, no matter kind of how much they want to say otherwise, they are. Um, It it took Kevin McCarthy 15 ballots to become the Speaker of the House, which was the most in 100 years. Um, His power in the speakership is significantly depleted. Mm-hmm. He agreed to a rules package that allows a single member uh, to move what's called move to vacate. In other words, to, to move to, to, to kick him out of the speakership um, and send us back to that voting marathon of, uh, you know, 15 rounds or however long it's gonna take, like a boxing match. Uh, if he cuts a deal, to try to save the electoral prospects, not to mention the economy of this country and in, 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 uh, international markets, the hardliners in his conference who are very opposed to that can rake him over the coals for it and remove him from power. They are in a very tenuous position.
1: And when we think about what will happen over the next week or so or or, or maybe even, even longer, I um, is it possible that um, that the chaos on that side of the idol and I think that's a, a fair description of of the Republican caucus at this point ends up causing a, a default because they can't they just can't get it together, in other words, not as a way of trying to extract something from the president uh, or, or make a point about fiscal responsibility, but just the inability. To manage the chamber and to govern—is that—is that a real threat to uh, to getting this f- fixed?
2: I think it it is, but I also think it's very early to start wondering. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of chaos right now, but Congress really has until June to figure this out because of the Treasury enacting some. Um, extraordinary measures to move some puzzle pieces around and and buy Congress more time. A lot can happen between now and June, and I think that will be the, no matter what Kevin McCarthy says about his caucus, um, taking a lot of messaging votes about stripping funding from the IRS or um, votes about abortion policy, or or, or, no matter how many messaging votes they want to take, and what they want to say their priorities are, I think it's pretty clear the the first priority for Kevin McCarthy by a wide margin has to be wrangling his conference into: Are we really going to negotiate on this, and do we have reasonable proposals uh, that are not going to get us shellacked at the polls, um, or are we willing to have this fight in different forums? Uh, because we truly do believe in rolling back government spending, which is a perfectly reasonable position, um, but we don't want to leverage it against the health of the entire global economy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that has to be priority number one for him, and um, but he's got some time to figure it out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Jacob Bogage. He is a business reporter for The Washington Post, has been covering the debt ceiling fight in Congress, which uh, looms pretty large right now, as Republicans uh, at least are signaling that they don't want to raise the debt ceiling yet again uh, and certainly don't want to do it without extracting uh, some concessions on future fiscal discipline from Uh, the White House. Uh, We'd love to hear from you, uh, listeners, during uh, the conversation as well. What do you make of this upcoming debt ceiling fight, which is one of many that we've witnessed in Washington? Do you think it's appropriate for Republicans to use the debt limit for political leverage for things that they want or want the the government to stop spending money on? Uh, Or do you think that Congress ought to just... uh, Uh, Go ahead and and make sure we can pay our debts to avoid the tremendous financial consequences uh, that would unfold if we didn't. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. Let's go to John on uh, the east side. Uh, John, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. So I just have a simple question. So back in the 2012 debacle, uh, when they didn't want to raise the debt ceiling, how much of that had to do with just creating chaos for Obama for a problem that I see uh, was caused by going into two wars
3: in the early 2000s? Uh,
1: It's a great question, John. And the the sort of bigger context for your question is, You know, how do we how do we get into this this situation? Uh, You know, how did we get to a place where the deficit grew as much as it did, which of course made the the debt itself uh, balloon and and whether essentially Democrats and Democratic presidents are being called to task for things that Republican predecessors uh, did. Uh, What's the answer to that, Jacob?
2: Yeah, I mean, to, to answer the first part of John's question, how much of this in 2011-2012 was just to make political hay in an election cycle, all of it. All of it was done to make political hay in an election cycle. Um, are Democratic administrations being held accountable for quote-unquote sins by by both Democratic and Republican presidents before them? Absolutely. The deficit exploded under the Trump administration. I don't think, given how the economy uh, responded to uh, President Trump's economic policy, that a lot of people were upset about that. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of spending. Um, President Trump's signature economic achievement, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, raised taxes on the middle class, raised taxes on the working class, cut taxes in the long run on the wealthiest Americans, and exploded the deficit. If Republicans wanted to extend those Trump era tax cuts, it would add trillions of dollars to the deficit. I mean, so the idea of deficit control and deficit reduction, I mean, the entire myth of who was going to pay for the border wall in Mexico, right? Like Mexico was not going to pay for that. We were going to pay for it with U.S. debt.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, Everyone likes to spend because everyone has priorities and Priorities mean money. We have to spend to to accomplish things. Um, the antidote to that is raising taxes. Nobody wants to actually raise taxes. Uh, so this is a, a bipartisan fiasco. Yeah, uh, I mean in, in its creation, absolutely. It is.
1: And to, to to be clear, um, you know, Republican posturing over this um, is. Is essentially something they can they get away with because people don't see tax cuts as spending. Uh, they they feel, yeah they feel like it's, it's it's stimulus uh, and it is right. I mean the economy does respond uh, positively to, to tax cuts, but you are taking money out of the treasury and that that helps exacerbate deficits. And that's a that's a point that kind of gets lost in this. I think.
2: That's a really, really good point. That is, however, very hard to sell to the electorate. Your tax cuts are government spending. Uh, it, that just, you know, that's that is very hard to drive home in a stump speech, however true it is. Uh, the yeah. I mean, I, I, I think when we talk about how we we get to this point over and over and over again, both parties have. Policy priorities and, and cutting spending uh, is a perfectly valid policy priority. I and mean, that is not an extreme position by any means. Um, but it does have real world consequences when uh, we have a social safety net in the United States that, compared to the rest of the world, is actually quite modest, but people rely on. Um, and when you openly talk about pulling that, clawing that back a little bit, um, that has people spooked. Um, Especially when you have other spending priorities, like tax cuts, especially for uh, businesses for the wealthiest Americans, like uh, depleting the ability of the IRS to do its job, uh, like cutting Social Security and Medicare, which people rely on.
1: Mm. Okay, uh, Jacob Bogage, business reporter for The Washington Post. Before I let you go, give me a sense of what you expect over the next uh, few weeks. Is this going to be as chaotic as it looks now, or does it uh, neaten itself up and uh, and we get a solution?
2: Frankly, I don't expect a whole lot about this until late July because Congress <laughs> likes to work on a deadline. Um, <laughs> I-, I will say the credit rating agency Moody's yesterday put out a research note that said we actually expect this to get taken care of the political and economic consequences facing Republicans are far too grave mm. for uh, the country to for, for the party to ignore this um I think a lot of that result rests on how Kevin McCarthy can wrangle his conference um and and you know consider, where is the best place to have a fight over spending? Is it in future budget talks or is it over the debt ceiling, which is not new spending? It just simply allows the government to pay its bills. So that's what I'm looking
1: for. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Really appreciate you being here uh, with us on Detroit today. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to continue talking about the debt ceiling. This time we're going to talk with, Former Chief Economist for the Congressional Budget Office, Uh, she's going to join the show to provide insight into the federal debt ceiling and what it means for the country and for you individually. As I said earlier, this is uh, an issue that has profound consequences. For our personal finances Uh, Wendy Edelberg will help us understand that When we get back We'll also continue with you on the phones And on social Abigail in Berkeley We'll get to you next If you want to join her 313-577-1019 is the number That's 313-577-1019 You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us And we can include you that way We'll be right back with more Detroit Today Today on 1019 WDET, I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad that you have decided to join us today. In America, we often discuss Congress's power of the purse as the political body granted by the Constitution with the ability to tax and spend public money. But what happens if Congress fails to exercise that power in regard to the debt limit? What will happen if Congress just doesn't? do it. And why is there even a debt limit in the first place? Also, if we don't extend the debt limit and there is some sort of default on American debt and credit, what will that mean? What will that mean Uh, From an international standpoint, from a national standpoint, what will it mean to you and your personal finances? To help us answer all of those questions and more, we're now joined by Wendy Edelberg. She is the director of the Hamilton Project and a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. She also previously served as the chief economist at the Congressional Budget Office. Wendy, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Happy to be here. Yeah. So let's start right uh, with that that question. What will happen if Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling? Uh, I think lots of Americans are familiar with the idea of credit default, uh, at least on an individual level. What would it mean at a national and global scale?
0: So when the debt ceiling binds which uh, I think, as you guys have already been talking about, uh, Secretary Yellen estimates wouldn't happen before early June. The U.S. Treasury can only pay its obligations with whatever tax revenues Treasury has on hand on a particular day. You should really think about the U.S. Treasury having a bank account that it can write checks on. So to be clear, these obligations are the result of laws that Congress has already enacted, laws that in some cases have been on the books for many decades. So this nutty debate is about whether the U.S. government should make good on the obligations that Congress itself has committed into law. Mm. All right. So obligations are estimated to exceed revenues by about a trillion dollars this year. So if Treasury can't borrow, they would have to cut the payments they make by about 20 percent on average in a given month. But that cut would be as much as twice as large in months that have lower revenues. So June is a particularly high-revenue month because people make quarterly tax payments. But in July, uh, tax revenues are generally pretty low. So cuts to uh, federal spending would be perhaps as as large as 40% in July. So, you know, we're talking about Treasury not making payments to Social Security beneficiaries, Hmm. uh, doctors and hospitals that have treated Medicare and Medicaid patients, defense contractors, federal workers. um, You know, there's a lot of federal spending on education. There's a very wide range of people who are on the other side of those obligations. And of course, most alarming for financial markets, it's the U.S. Treasury making interest payments on the debt.
1: And what would that look like? For um, for the nation globally, let's start there. Uh, the United States has never defaulted on on uh, on its on its debt before. What would that What would that mean? Would it matter?
0: So it it, it indeed would matter. Uh, uh, the 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 worst of uh, the very bad possible scenarios, I think, is if Treasury feels compelled to miss an interest payment mm-hmm. on treasury bonds. Because I, that just, it seems pretty cut and dry that would have to be interpreted as a default on the debt, which would be pretty cataclysmic for not just US financial markets, but global financial markets. There are, you know, there's this is a more than $30 trillion market and it is central to uh, most transactions that occur across the globe. Um, So my guess, given how terribly bad uh, that scenario sounds, is that Treasury would work to make the interest payments, but then they'd have to figure out what to do about all the other obligations. Mm -hmm. Um, And it still may be that folks in financial markets make the argument that if they miss a Social Security payment, if they miss a payment to a federal contractor, that that is, in a sense, its own kind of default. So uh, there will be in some legal uncertainty there. And then also, Treasury really has no authority to prioritize interest payments over anything else. And so I think the 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 uh, legal challenges would come immediately, and I don't know what a court would do. Um, and so what all this would mean is that even if, even if Treasury tried to avoid the worst outcome by maintaining interest payments, I think we would see the stock market tank. I think we'd see interest rates skyrocket. And and then, of course, there really are individuals who are going to be on the other side of those transactions who don't get payments Mm. when they expect them. So the person who totally, reasonably expects their Social Security payment to come on the third of the month, as it always does, may well have an automatic uh, rent payment that they make on the 4th. And there won't be money in their account then to make that rent payment. So there are real economic consequences too.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Wendy Edelberg. She's the director of the Hamilton Project and a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. She previously served as the chief economist at the Congressional Budget Office. We're talking about the economics of the debt ceiling and the possible consequences if uh, if we were to default uh, on our debts for the first time in history. What would it mean on a global scale? What would it mean nationally? What would it mean to you uh, as somebody who maybe depends on government and government payments um, to come through? Uh, as always, we would love to hear from you on the phones as well. Three one three five seven seven. 1019 uh, call and uh, let us know what you think of this looming showdown over the debt ceiling, something that seems to happen every few years now in Washington as the two parties uh, can't agree uh, on on fiscal policy uh, and end up uh, really wrangling over money that's already been spent um, and, and how to pay for it, as opposed to dealing with uh, fiscal policy overall. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. Before we get to our listeners, uh, Wendy, I want to ask you about the 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 longer-term fixes that would be possible uh, for Congress to, to enact. I mean, obviously... Uh, spending less uh, spending within the limits of tax revenue I mean that's that's an obvious answer that that if you stop borrowing you won't have to deal with this but but that doesn't seem uh, terribly likely or maybe even realistic so if we're going to continue to operate this way how do we avoid these weird standoffs uh, that that threaten much larger financial consequence I mean what what are some of the things you would like Congress to uh, to at least think about doing
0: well before we get there I want to add one thing to your list which is not only would a uh, policy that results in no federal borrowing not necessarily be realistic it's probably not good policy mm-hmm. so there are lots of excellent reasons why the US government spends more than it takes in in revenues um, if if you think about all the all the various reasons why an individual might borrow against the future, mm-hmm. some of those apply to the U.S. government too. Uh, these are a lot of what the U.S. government is doing is in is in a sense investing to make our future lives better, and that is entirely worth federal borrowing. And and also when when we have when we periodically have very very bad economic outcomes like we did with the pandemic, uh, it makes perfect sense for the U.S. government to use its borrowing authority to smooth it over those bad times. Um, my future self will be, will, even as, as, I, as I help to pay off the, the borrowing from 2020 and 2021, my future self is going to remember that life in 2020 and 2021 could have been a whole lot worse mm-hmm. if we hadn't borrowed. So anyway,
1: uh, and that's an important point because I mean I think there's there are a lot of f- folks who say, well just control the spending spend within within limits but but the things that you're talking about really point out that that's that's not great fiscal policy that, that there are things that would be really different about our country if you did it that way
0: right um, Think about uh, so many of the things that the federal government is spending money on they're spending money on infrastructure that's going to benefit future generations, uh, educating the young who are literally the future generations in this country, um, you know, making sure that we are healthy, uh, investing in, uh, you know, new kinds of, of medicine that will make us even healthier in the future. Um, making sure that globally, uh, you know, we're pretty safe, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, It makes sense, like, I want the U.S. government to have on its mind, um, you know, making sure that uh, we're not just safe today, but safe in the future. So, um, and and not only do these things demand borrowing, but uh, financial markets are clearly very content to lend to the U.S. government. Um, Now, we might be putting that at risk. Um, let me say it you know it's financial markets lend to you know lots of developed nations um but even even more than other countries it's estimated that the u s enjoys a quarter percentage point lower interest rate because people so very much like lending to the u s mm-hmm, government mm-hmm. because treasuries are thought to be such you know very low risk, excellent financial instruments to use. And we are absolutely in danger of the eating away at that advantage. And that's real money. Yeah. So that quarter percentage point reduction in interest rates that we enjoy is like almost a trillion dollars in savings and interest payments over a decade. So um, anyway, all right. So that's about in, in, in defense of borrowing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what Congress should do is, I mean, get rid of the debt ceiling. It's bad policy. So if Congress passes laws that determine the path of revenues, passes laws that determine the path of spending. It is nonsensical for them to separately say, we also want a separate law to determine how much Treasury can borrow Hmm. to pay the bills. Um, You have basically set a, a path in motion for federal borrowing once you've decided on revenues and spending. So, you know, there's like only one other country that has a debt ceiling it's pro forma in that other country however historically we got here it is dumb policy and it should just be eliminated
1: yeah yeah it would it would avoid all of this kind of performative uh, uh, nonsense around around something that that has already happened uh, and that we don't really have Uh, a lot of control over over taking care of. Okay, we're going to take another quick break and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with uh, Wendy Edelberg. Uh, We will also get to you, the listeners, uh, and hear what your questions are about the debt ceiling. Karen and Charlie in Detroit, Abigail in Berkeley, Aaron in Troy. We'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. You're on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll include you that way. We'll be right back. With more detroit today This is detroit today and guest is Winnie Edelbert. She's the director of the Hamilton Project and a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. She previously served as the chief economist at the Congressional Budget Office. She is helping us make sense of the argument that is about to unfold in Washington over raising the debt ceiling, something that we seem to come back to over and over these days uh, in Washington, whether to approve uh, the paying of debts that we have really already incurred, um, we're talking about uh, why we keep finding ourselves in this situation and what it would mean if we didn't approve a raising of the debt ceiling if uh, America were to default uh, in some way on its debts. want to hear from you as well on the phones, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today and you can be part of the conversation uh, that way. Let's start uh, with Abigail in Berkeley. Abigail, what's on your mind?
0: Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just gotta say, this whole conversation is crazy-making for me. We've been talking about fiscal conservatism and balancing the budget since 2008, and it seems to me that the Republicans wanna call themselves fiscal conservatives whenever it serves their purposes but are never willing to consider the two most, most obvious solutions to balancing the budget, which are paring back our bloated military spending mm. and raising the taxes on the most wealthy. And if you're totally fine with bailing out banks and major corporations and tax cuts for the wealthy, but then not okay with, People retiring in dignity and having their health care paid for, then you can't call yourself a fiscal con- conservative. I'm going to call BS on that.
1: Hmm. Uh, Amigal, I really appreciate the call and and the observation. I think uh, uh, you're right about the duplicity that, that we see. Uh, Wendy Edelberg, what do you make of the of the uh, the idea that this gets t- this uh, debate over the debt ceiling gets tied in with this concept of of fiscal conservatism or fiscal responsibility uh but but it, it, it that never extends to the arguments over things like giant tax cuts for instance which uh, republicans uh, enthusiastically support and supported when donald trump was president is one of the things that's actually fueling uh, the, the deficit in the debt now uh, we, we don't seem to be able to to sort that out in a way that makes sense to to, to many people uh
0: so 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 first, I will, I will echo the point that, uh, you know, just as the, the fact that we have a deficit right now is, is the culmination of policies that we've had on the books, sometimes for decades, but sometimes uh, just since 2017, mm-hmm. uh, when the 2017 Tax Act was passed. So, um, these you know, the fact, the fact that we have a deficit, um, and we have a lot of obligations that are going to exceed the revenues that Treasury's got coming in, is very much, in part, uh, a result of policies that Republicans have, have put in place, as, as of course, as well as Democrats. Um, one thing that frustrates me is there's no logical reason to be linking the arguments about raising the debt ceiling, which is just, as, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough, it's just a dumb argument, with what future tax and spending policy should look like. Uh, it's, it, it's It creates confusion. It's for the purpose of misleading. Um, it's, you know, maybe they both have the word borrowing in them, and so that, you know, uh, is just enough to confuse people. But um, one really is about paying obligations of, you know, past policies. And one is about the really hard negotiations about what future policy should look like. And I don't want to minimize how hard that is. We have real disagreements in this country about how big we want the federal government to be and how much we value it and how much we're willing to tax ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I get it, those conversations are really hard, but trying to have them uh, in a fire drill um, that will actually become a real fire uh, over the course of a couple of months is just not the right way to try to come to an agreement about making big changes to fiscal policy going forward. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Abigail, again, really appreciate the call and the, the 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 great question. Let's go next to Charlie in Detroit. Charlie, what's on your mind? Yeah, hi.
3: Um, two questions. One, who do we owe all this money to? Who are our creditors? And then, two, I've often heard it said by some economists that deficit spending is not a big deal. Why would that be, or is it?
1: Yeah, Great questions, Charlie. Uh, Wendy, go ahead.
0: So on the first question of who we owe this money to, to a large degree, we owe it to ourselves. So what you really want to think about is who owns U.S. Treasuries. And, uh, you know, if you work for an employer who... Uh, has a 401K for you, that 401K no doubt holds treasuries. Um, so a lot of U.S. treasuries are held by U.S. citizens. And so the money's not leaving the the economy. Uh, it's all staying within the U.S., but nonetheless, uh, you'd be pretty missed, and, and certainly the you know U.S. financial markets would be pretty missed if they were holding U.S. treasuries and the U.S. government said, you know what, uh, we're just not going to pay. Now, a lot of that money, a lot of those treasuries are also held abroad um, and by sovereign wealth funds abroad, by just, you know, foreign investors. Um, and so, uh, and in fact, that gets to your second question of whether or not deficits are a good thing or a bad thing. One way, I'm going to come back to uh, just reiterate the points about how deficits are, are not evil. Deficits are make perfect sense, particularly for the United States. But- One of the negative consequences of deficits in the US is that we pay a chunk of that interest to foreign investors and like foreign sovereign wealth funds. Mm -hmm. And sure, we're very delighted that they are willing to lend to us and we use that money for all sorts of effective things. But when we send those interest payments abroad, uh, that is just, that's money that is leaving the US economy. Um, so that's one way of thinking about that. There really is a cost to deficit. Um, so, as to whether or not deficits are good or bad, um, the essential question is: What are we doing with the money, mm-hmm. and how much are we? How much is the money costing us? And interest rates on U.S. Treasuries for now are pretty darn low. You know, they've come up a bunch uh, over over the last couple of years, but still, in a global sense. It, our ability to borrow relative to other countries abilities to borrow um interest rates on tre- treasuries are pretty darn low uh, so it is pretty easy for the u.s government to borrow mm. um and far and away we are doing excellent things with that money we are investing in the u.s economy we are investing in children we are investing in research and development uh we are keeping ourselves safe we are Creating a social insurance system, which makes our economy more resilient and helps families in poverty, um, those are all good things. So the the question is not uh, the fundamental question is not is the a is deficit good or bad? It is are we doing good things with the money?
1: Right? Is it is it a justified? Uh, yeah. expenditure. yeah, that's a great yeah. way to think about it. Uh, again, thanks so much, uh, Charlie, for the uh, the call uh, in the question. Let's go to Aaron in Troy. Aaron, welcome to the show.
0: Hi
3: thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. So I just have um, one comment and one question. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe two questions. so my <laughs> my first comment is just, uh, in my mind, any political party, and in this case, the Republicans, that's willing to um, cause a global financial crisis uh, to get what they want, I think is is just reckless and dangerous to the United States uh, and, and the world at large. But then my question for Wendy would be kind of a two-parter. The first part is, is there any risk to this growing debt, right? I know economists used to think there was kind of this magic debt to GDP number. And I know that debt to GDP number, I think, Uh, as of last year, had risen to 129%. So I'm wondering if if that's something that we're worried about. um, Does that become an issue for us at all? And then are we printing money to uh, service this debt? Because I guess in my mind, technically, with the fiat currency, you could just print as much money as you wanted (laughs) in order to service as much debt as you would like. But then at, at some point, you maybe cause inflation really. Yeah, right? well, you so,
1: devalue the currency. I mean, I suppose right, we could— exactly. Uh, so is
3: there, is there a debt-to-GDP magic number that we should be worried about crossing? And are we printing money and causing inflation by, uh, by this deficit spending? Yeah,
1: great great questions, uh, Aaron. Uh, I'm glad you called Wendy. What, what are the answers?
0: Okay. Uh, great, great points. First, let me just very quickly on your comment about how incredibly irresponsible this is— um, just to make you even more worried, I think, um, there's, all, there's, there's a, a Republican c- proposal floating around in Congress that I, I don't think will pass, but it's nonetheless floating around that would actually tell Treasury how to prioritize payments uh, when we get to the day that the debt ceiling binds. And what alarms me about that is that it is, it means that we're, where the heads are of at least the people who are supporting that bill um, is planning for the crisis rather than avoiding the crisis, Uh, avoiding the crisis that they are entirely within their capabilities of avoiding. So that worries me even more. Mm -hmm. It makes me think they're even more irresponsible. Okay. So that's number one. Uh, Debt to GDP. So no, there is no, there is no particular level. And the, the reason to think about why it makes perfect sense that there's no particular level is that financial markets are, uh, not, not going to be particularly worried about the level of debt or how big a deficit is on any particular day. You know, financial markets are really big. Uh, they can absorb, as we saw during the pandemic, even a very significant run-up in, in debt, not just from the U.S., but from countries all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, what they're going to worry about and what they're going to care most about is how things look going forward. So what, what's the trajectory look like? And so it's not, it's not what the level is. It's the day that financial markets think that the U.S. is on some completely irresponsible path going forward, and uh, there's no getting off that path. It doesn't matter if debt to GDP is at 80% or where it is uh, now at around 100% or so, or it's at 120 or 140. it it doesn't matter what the level is today. It matters if financial markets lose their faith in uh, the U.S. government acting responsibly going forward. Um, So, uh, and that would be a very bad day. Um, Now, with regards to, can't we just print money to pay off the debt? Um,
1: Yeah, why don't we mint a trillion dollar coin?
0: For instance. Oh, okay. So let's come back to the coin. Well, let's come back to the. Uh, I mean, they're related, but let's come back to the coin. Let's come back to. Set that aside for a second. Um, this is the glory of having an independent central bank. Right. This is why it's so very critical to have a, cent- a central bank that's independent. Our central bank controls the size of the money supply, and. Uh, not not
1: so, not the political branches <laughs>
0: right. right not the political branches so treasury cannot by itself increase the money supply uh like unilaterally and 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 have that stick um in in any way the the fed at the end of the day controls the money supply so that is why we're not going to you know anyway so <laughs> maybe that's good enough to answer the question but $1 trillion dollar coin Okay, so uh, I'm going to try to do this without being painful, because and I think we're, like, wrapping up in just a minute Yeah, we Yeah, we're
1: about a minute away, so. <laughs> oh,
0: my God, a minute, a minute for the coin. Um, so, quirk in the law, Treasury is allowed to mint, and it, so normally Treasury does not issue coins. They don't. They, mint makes them, and, right. like, the Fed goes, gets them, and puts them in the circulation. Quirk in the law, Treasury is allowed to mint and issue a platinum coin of any value that it chooses. So theoretically, it could mint an issue, a trillion-dollar platinum coin. But maybe let's not be so stupid about it. Let's say they, it's a $2.56 billion coin okay. that uh, allows it to meet its state's obligation. It can take that coin and deposit it in, in its account at the Fed. Um, so the reason I think this is politically a very, very bad idea is that I think Congress has made clear that its will is to control – the, how much borrowing there is. And um, Treasury would clearly be taking actions to subvert the will of Congress. Um, it's a dumb will of Congress, and it's contradictory to other wills of Congress, but I think that is that is bad, and I'm not sure that the Fed would even be, want to be party to it. Yeah. For reasons that I can't get into, I just want you all, I mean, I'm happy to, if you want to go on for another few minutes.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, I, we don't have I, another few I minutes. I assure but, uh...
0: you, I assure you, That would not be inflationary, and it would not affect interest rates, because the Fed could take very straightforward actions, because, again, the Fed controls the money supply. The Fed would take actions to get the money supply back to where it wanted it to be in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So don't worry about, (laughs) like, politically it's bad. It's not bad for the economy.
1: Right, right. Uh, Okay, Wendy Edelberg of the Hamilton Project and the Brookings Institution was really great to have you here to answer these questions for our listeners. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. Come back on Monday for another great conversation here on Detroit Today. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again next week.